Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Fiona Valpi. She's a historical fiction author. The new one is The Cypress Maze. We chat about how daunting she finds the lead up to a big bit of writing. Is it the same as other work? Maybe when you've got a huge meeting coming up? Also, when she looks to the compost bin to see what her next novel might be and why she likes to challenge herself by changing style and pace. I do love a challenge and I think it's it's good for us to be challenged in life because that you know that forces growth but it also keeps us interested and it keeps us sharp and it and it stops us from um, just sort of taking for granted the the knowledge that perhaps we've we've built up through previous research. Where my writing started was with a move to France from from Scotland. And that in itself was a, was a big leap into, you know, a new life, living the dream, all of that stuff. Um, and it was there that I really found I had the time and then also importantly, the inspiration to begin writing. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. This week, it's Fiona Valpi on the show. She has sold millions of books. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages. And the new one is The Cypress Maze, inspired by the story of English-born Iris Arrigo, who during World War II sheltered refugee children and helped many Allied prisoners of war escape. Now, it's dual timeline set across 1943 and 2015, and we talk about the extensive research that goes into a historical novel like this, why it's led to her rethinking her extensive filing system. Also... Fiona's writing a lot all the time for a few different publishers. How does that factor into it? Doing different things. We talk about the different pressure that is heaped onto her writing by having to juggle plates and deal with different contracts all at the same time. How she breaks it apart and how she keeps things constantly ticking over in the compost bin. So there is always something for her to turn to next. You can hear how she handles fictional plot with factual history, something I'm always very interested to talk to historical figures about. Historical authors want to stay true to the time they're writing in because, well, what's the point if they don't, really? But you're inserting your own character into that how do you strike the balance and you can hear how much her visual style completely absorbs her when she's writing there's a lot to take in with with this week's episode a lot of tricks and tips i think might really help your working day so let's get into it with fiona valby and we start things off as we always do with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write i'm sitting in it right now i'm looking out at my garden and my and that there are fields with horses in and, and hills beyond. So I'm lucky enough to live in um, it's kind of where the highlands of Scotland begin um, up here in the wilds. I started off writing in a little corner of my kitchen when I first moved into this house, and um, things rapidly expanded. Um, luckily for me. And I also am an, a complete binge reader of books and I can never bear to get rid of them. So my bookcases get fuller and fuller. So after a, a couple of years, I realized I was going to have to build, have an extension built on. 
um, partly to house my books, but also to give me better space to to write. And so that's where I'm sitting now. Um, this being Scotland, it has a, a lovely wood burning stove in one corner of the room, which I do not have on today. Rarely, we we've got a. I suppose you could call it a Scottish heat wave. I don't think it's quite as hot as it is in the south of England, but um, this is our summer, so it's great. Um, and it also has um, double doors leading out onto a little patio and then my garden beyond. So today I'm going to be sitting out there with the doors open a little bit later on and enjoying what little sun there is in Scotland. Have it like having this extension, you want to design a better place for you to write. And Abby, we, we've got a house, all the books, as you say. Uh, what what did you really want that writing space to be? I mean, obviously, uh, th- there were some limits to what you could pr- practically do. But did you have anything keen in mind to give you the best chance of writing? I did. I wanted lots of heat and lots of light. Um, which I've got, but I've also, um, it has a mezzanine um, built in, but it is a double height extension. And so part of it goes right up to the roof. And one of my friends walked in and said, oh, this is a brilliant place to create because there's there's no limit. You know, there's no ceiling. It just, it just goes up to the sky almost because there are, are roof lights in that roof. And I, I hadn't consciously done that, but I thought maybe they had a point. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. I, I wonder if like, the space we are in can box in some of the ideas that we have. I don't know. Do you know, I, I find that and I sometimes think, oh, you know, we writers can be a bit precious and say we have to be in the right space and in the right environment. And, you know, everything has to be has to feel right before we can kind of get on with our get on with our craft um so for me it is quite important the space i'm in i mean having said that i did manage to write my books in the corner of the kitchen so uh, you know you you adapt but i now have the luxury of having this this lovely space and i've filled it with i'm surrounded by books i'm surrounded by all my piles of notes because i'm I'm a bit of a dinosaur in the way I write. So I have piles and piles of papers and notes and post-its everywhere. Um, And fortunately, I have this space so I can leave all that junk and all those piles. Um, I kind of know where everything is. To to anyone else's eye, it would look probably like a complete mess. Um, But it's my my so-called filing system. Um, And so for me, having this space has become really important what about the actual notes fiona you say you're the only one who kind of can understand where they are but if if i were to pick up a a sheet of your notes would i kind of comprehend anything that's on it are they in any logical form at all um no they're pretty random although (laughs) with the book that i'm writing at the moment which is is a particularly complex sort of interweaving of stories i've resorted to different colored folders for different Topics. So I, you know, I'll know in my head that I have a particular piece of information that I've researched. And this is, this is helping me a little bit. But like I say, I call it a filing system, use that term very loosely. Um, but on this occasion with this book, I've had to be a little bit more organized. It's interesting you say that the book that you're currently writing is a bit more complex to write. And you've, you've pu- published 12 novels now, is that right? Um, yes, it's really nine because three have been republished. So um, they and we, it was nice to have a chance to re-edit those books. They were the the, the very first three books that I ever wrote, um, and they were a little bit different from the ones that I've gone on to write more recently. They were very much, I would call them, it's kind of summer holiday reads. Lie on a sun lounger with a nice glass of wine and um, lose yourself in the French countryside, which is where those three novels are written. So they're a bit more lighthearted. Um, and as I say, it was, it was very nice to, to have the chance to, to re-edit and rewrite little bits of them. The, the storylines overall haven't changed and the characters haven't changed, but I could bring them a little bit more in line with, with what I've written since, which has become um, very much dual timeline fiction. 
Ah, oh, that's that's fascinating. Uh, so you, you've built up now uh, 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 you've, as a historical novelist with dual timelines uh, weaving their way through. You've built up an audience that kind of expects something like that from you. How much did you feel when you were rewriting, although you weren't changing much of the plot, that you needed to, to justify that element of it in your earlier work? Well, it was it was interesting going back to it because all my dual timeline fiction did grow out of those first three simpler and more contemporary stories. Um, so it was really nice to go back and revisit them. And all I did was put in a little reference here and there to that historical context that I then explore in a lot more detail in the subsequent books. So it, it was sort of there as an undercurrent, and that's what gave me my inspiration to go on and write these dual timeline novels afterwards. Um, so it just really was a case of perhaps turning up the volume a tiny bit on some of those areas where the contemporary characters are becoming more aware of the historical context. And as I say, you mentioned that you're, you're in the middle of writing a slightly more complex book to write. As, you, as you've published nine novels now, uh, do you, how much do you feel yourself getting better at the skill and being more able to take on difficult books? Is it a bit like a builder, perhaps, or an architect kind of working on a, on a simpler house, perhaps, and then eventually working up to... to kind of figuring out a, a mansion with, with mezzanines and whatnot. Absolutely. I, I love that analogy. Um, yeah, it's very much like that. I mean, I, I have definitely improved as a writer. People have said that to me and, and I have felt it myself. And I, I feel as if um, my writing has grown and I've grown with it, or, or perhaps that should be slightly the other way around uh, in terms of personal growth. But um yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I, I'm a firm believer that you have to have very strong foundations to build anything. Um, and whether it's a house, as, you, as you've described, or whether it's writing a book, or whether it's your own personal journey and growth, um, if you have those firm foundations, then you can at least make a start. We don't always know where it's going to, to end. And, and that, that applies, especially with both one's personal growth and with writing a book, uh, you know, the, the ending can sometimes surprise you um, and see, you know, you, you, part of the process is seeing where that, where that takes you. Um, but with, if you don't have the firm foundations in the first place, it's really difficult to even start to begin writing a story, especially if it's a novel of, you know, some, some hundred thousand words um, with these complexities built in. I wonder if you can, I, I guess, <clears throat> try and try and uh, make it, I, I guess, a tad more specific. Like, what are you better experienced in now that helps you lay those foundations? What have you learned along the way that means you, you're better at, I guess, visioning where it's going? You're better at uh, t being able to, to, to describe these grand ideas in more uh, accurate, sim simpler words? Like, I, I don't... Um, well, a lot of it's in the planning, which gives you helps you to build that foundation. When I started off, um, I was what they call a pantser, you know, flying by the seat of my pants. Oh, I've had a brilliant idea for a book. I'm just going to start writing it. And um, then rapidly got totally lost when it came to, to the middle. I think, you know, you kind of have a an idea of the beginning and the end, but those middle sections for writers can be, can be quite probably the trickiest ones to navigate, I think. So I did learn to start plotting um, a, in a bit more detail. And I, I use a six-stage um, six plot structure to map out my books before I even start writing. Um, also, having contracts from my publisher helps a lot in that planning stage because you have to have submitted a proposal with the outline plot so it really helps to focus my mind early on. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get a contract if I haven't been able to describe the novel that I'm intending to write. And, and things can always change along the way, but you have to have that, that ba those basic foundations in place in order to be, 
to be given a contract um, to write that book. So it, it's the plotting and the planning that that um, have helped me a lot to establish those foundations. But I definitely think the more you know, the more you write, the more easily it it flows because even though we were all filled with doubts all the time and, um, you know, wonder when someone's going to call us out and say we're rubbish and, and it's all useless, despite what the sales figures say and despite what the, the reviews might say, we all have those, those insecurities and those doubts. So I think having, having done it now nine times and I'm on my 10th, I can at least tell myself when I have those, those wobbly moments that I've done it before. I, I should know what I'm doing by now. You know, we, we do, we definitely do grow and learn at any stage in our lives. Just plonking you back where you write, uh, we get quite, I, I guess, specific, maybe nerdy on the show. You said that you're slightly old fashioned with your notes taking. What kind of software do you write with? And people are very interested in fonts, Fiona. Do you have any strong font opinions? <gasps> <laughs> well, um, yeah, fonts wise, I'm afraid I use good old times New Roman double spaced, partly because that's not how the book's going to end up. You know, the, the, the book's going to go through so many rounds of editing um, and so many changes. And the, so the final product is to, to a certain extent going to look totally different physically than than uh, what I'm seeing on the screen. So while I would say that Times New Roman isn't necessarily my favorite font of choice, it, it's a really good one for, for doing the job, for getting the words down. Um, Software-wise, I, I just use Word. Um, again, bit old-fashioned. I know that there are there are wonderful platforms now that that writers use, but it it's what I'm used to. It's how I'm used to working, and I think it. I, I think you know my the, what I've described to you as the, the piles of notes and that the you know my so-called filing system um, that works for me because I, I visually I can physically see where my notes are. And I think I am a very visual person and I, I'm a very visual writer as well. So, so picturing things, you know, if I, if I think to myself, now I'm sure I had that, that particular fact. I, I saw that somewhere. I researched it somewhere. I made a note. I wrote it down. Where will it be? And I can sort of picture where it is in the pile. So it works for me, even though it's, it probably uh, wouldn't work for everybody and some people might think it looks a bit chaotic, but it, it, maybe that's just the way my brain works. I know we're not here to talk about the novel you're currently writing, but I'm interested what happened for it to become too much that you needed to actually sort out your filing system into something <laughs> like even more visual. Um, I think it's it's a number of themes that I'm working with and they're really big themes. Um so yeah, although we're not here to talk about it, I am really excited about it because I've set it in Nepal and I have just been out to Nepal for three weeks and spent uh, nearly a fortnight living in a Sherpa village in a Sherpa community um, doing my research out there. So it's, it's, a, it's a different setting. Um, and I'm, I've also woven in um, themes of plant hunting and botany and I'm a keen amateur, very amateur gardener, but I am by no stretch of the imagination a botanist. So I think it's it's having to um, you know get to grips with all of those new challenges. It's it's a totally different culture. It's a totally different setting, um, and the this I, you know I need to get some of the scientific facts straight in my head at least to be able to communicate them to to my readers. So so yeah, that one's been um, a big mouthful that I've bitten off. Um, but I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving the challenge. How much of uh, coming up with an idea for a new story is about setting yourself a challenge? There are quite a lot of authors out there, uh, perhaps genre authors, who are kind of fine to, you know, find their lane and stay in it for, for better or worse, because it, it might sell the millions of copies and, and getting through a book is phenomenally tough anyway. So that's fantastic. But how much of it for you is, oh, what, what would it be like to write about 
Nepal. Like I don't know anything about these places. It takes me so it takes me and the readers so far away from everything we would be doing. How much of that plays an aspect in future books that you will write? I think it plays it's hugely influential in in finding my inspiration. I do love a challenge and I think it's it's good for us to be challenged in life because that you know that forces growth but it also keeps us interested and it keeps us sharp and it and it stops us from um just sort of taking for granted the the knowledge that perhaps we've we've built up through previous research where my writing started was with a move to france from from scotland and that in itself was a was a big leap into you know, a new life, living the dream, all of that stuff. Um, and it was there that I really found I had the time and then also importantly, the inspiration to begin writing. So that in itself was a challenge. Going to a, a country where you you come in as an outsider, um, you're having to learn a new language. I did speak some French, very rusty up to A-level, but um you know, I quickly realized that I was going to have to communicate. I couldn't just sit there and say nothing and um, be embarrassed about speaking French. I had to jump in and make all the silly, crazy mistakes and, you know, just just laugh. But it's communication. Um, And there I learned a lot about the French wine industry, for example, which was quite a lot of fun to research, as you can imagine. Uh, Lots of lots of tasting and sampling. but also getting to know local wine producers, going and working the harvest with them. Um, and, you know, this was as I was approaching my, my 50s. So it was a real um, fresh start and a fresh challenge. And I just discovered this, this passion to start communicating it to other people, to start writing about it, to start sharing it. Uh, you know, the good, the bad, the hilarious and the, and the sad. Um, and so that, that was really where it began. And it's funny how every book that I've written since, somehow the inspiration has, has arrived. I'm a, I'm a huge magpie when it comes to collecting little snippets and little bits of, of in, inspiration, little facts, little throwaway remarks here and there along the way. And again, I stuff them all into various folders in my my other effective and efficient filing system and um, let them kind of bubble away. And then every now and then something will come along that triggers that writing that book or writing that story. So I have, I, I call it composting. I have, I have lots and lots and lots of of ideas and and they're all sort of breaking down and quietly in the back corner of my mind, just like a compost heap in the in the back corner of the garden. And and sooner or later, one of them will reach the stage of compost where it's possible to grow something from it. I have to say, I every single day I give thanks for where my life is now because I have so much flexibility. And that is such a luxury especially having spent the first really half of my life uh, very much working to routines, bringing up my two sons who are now who are now up and off um, and working in nine to five jobs. So, you know, all of that has, has taught me how really precious it is and what a luxury it is to be able to, to wake up in the morning at the time you choose. And, and I wake up quite early because I'm, I am a morning person and I know that my my writing brain works best earlier in the day. Um, so I get up and the very first thing I do is I go and swim in the River Tay, which is just down from my house. And I do that all year round. So um, somebody was somebody walked past the other day and said, oh, isn't the water cold? And I said, well, not as cold as it was in January because, uh, you know, I literally swim all year round. Um, and I love that. It's, it's just such a great way to start the day and to, to wake up my brain. Um, it's helped me a lot as well in the last year with re- my physical rehabilitation because I had a rather large accident just a, um, actually not even a year and a half ago. Um, that I've recovered from now, thankfully. But um, part of my part of my personal physio routine was my cold water swimming, and it and it it really helps me both. I think both mentally and physically. 
So I love that. Then, then I'll come back and have a cup of tea and have my breakfast and sit with my computer in front of me and I will try and answer any emails, do my social media, uh, you know, catch up with all my, my posts or replies for the day. So I try and get all of that out of the way um, while I'm drinking a whole pot of tea. And after that, once I've done all of that, then I can settle down and and get on with the serious business of writing. Um, so I write mostly in the mornings and, and most of the mornings. And, um, and again, the lovely thing about being a writer and having that flexibility is if I, if I do, if I, you know, do something like this podcast, which is in a morning, that's fine because I know that I can work this afternoon. I can work tomorrow and I can work all through the weekends if, if necessary. So that flexibility is a real gift, I think, from, for a writer. Uh, and you can sort of do that precious thing about waiting till the, the spirit moves you up to a certain extent. Although when I am writing um, to a contract, as I am at the moment, and I therefore have a deadline for, for finishing that manuscript, um, then I have very... Um, set targets of how many words I, I know that I need to write in order to get that manuscript in in time. So again, you know, there's that flexibility there, but I have a, a structure and a routine that that supports it and that, that, hold, that sort of holds that flexibility so that it gives me a, a sense of purpose in life. Um, so that's, yeah, then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll stop for lunch at some point, if I'm if it's going really well, I might look up and it's three o'clock in the afternoon, and I think, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> might have some lunch now then. Um, and other days, it's just an hour or two, and I I get my words done, or I get to a a point where I feel comfortable stopping because I know that the next you know tomorrow I'm going to have more time, and therefore, if it's a really key um, part of the the story, I might save that so that I can get a really good run at it and and not have to stop and start. Just really immerse myself because this this visual way of working and thinking that that very much suits my brain means that I get totally absorbed in in things. And I can see my characters, I can see the setting, I can see the story unfolding. And it's a case of letting that um, you know, come come through my fingers and hopefully into the words on the page. You say there are structures and targets. What's a good day for you if, if we are talking a word count or, or scene by scene? Um, a couple of thousand words is good. Um, I think because I edit a lot as I go as well, um, sometimes I will even sit with a pad of paper and write Physic, you know, I said I was a dinosaur, right? Uh, physically, with what's called a pen and a piece of paper, we, we've we've forgotten about those. Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes, I if I'm really keen to to um, do justice to a scene, and I think it's going to be a slightly tricky one, I will actually physically write it first, and I'll have there'll be lots of scribbles and lots of crossings out and lots of arrows, and then I'll transcribe it into Word. And at that point, I'm, I'm editing again. So, it, you know, it, it just is a way of helping me to tackle these things that can, be, that can seem very daunting. Um, all writers know that the terror of getting writer's block or the, the terror of sitting looking at, at a blank page and having to start and write the first word. Um, and so sometimes for me, it's good to resort to the the pad and the and the pen and that just it seems less daunting you know you can scribble all over it and it's my own handwriting and it and I think there's also something in my brain about engaging my my hand in in physically writing because um you know that definitely is something that as I say I'll I'll, I'll use as a fallback um if I'm feeling a bit daunted or feeling a bit stuck or not quite sure where to take a character next. Talking about things being daunting, 
if you're in a regular job, uh, someone listening might have a big presentation next week and they're worrying about that. Uh, how much is that true across writing? If you know that maybe later in the week you'll end up with that big scene, is uh, how much does kind of that element of dread filter through and you, you feeling a bit anxious maybe a few days before? I think we, I think it does apply. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I do think it applies. Um, if I have that, if I know that I'm leading up to a really key turning point in, in the plot, I'll, I will sort of need to prepare myself for writing it and I will need to give myself that space um, to, to really do it justice. And I will also feel completely wrung out afterwards, just as you, just as you would do with a big presentation at work, you know, you, the adrenaline's flowing and you, and you, you really want to do your best and you, you feel that it's so important to, to communicate things accurately and, and fully. And so, but, but, but those are the good days. You know, if I get to the end of the day and I feel totally drained Sometimes I'll say to my friends, oh, my brain's completely empty because I've written a couple of thousand words today. And But that's a good thing. I feel that I've done justice to myself and hopefully to my writing. On days when you are slightly struggling, uh, ha- have you learned anything along the way that just helps the word come out? You mentioned the dreaded writer's block earlier. Uh, what, what do you tend to do? I've, I've learned that the very best thing is to, to go for a walk. Just shut down the computer, get out, climb. I've got a hill behind my house and that's where I, that's where I walk. That's where I cr- climb. And it's, it's funny because the minute you stop trying to find the word or the, or the um, linking section that will get you from one plot point to the next, it's, it's often those linking sections that are the, are the unknowns and are the, are the more challenging parts. Um, and for me, walking up that hill is the perfect way. By the time I come back down, I just know I'll have found some way of, of moving on. The, because I'm when I'm walking, I'm with my characters and I'm, I've got time to think around the story and around what they might be doing, um, as well as enjoying the, the open air and, and, you know, disconnecting my brain a bit from a screen, which I think is very important too. So, yep, it's often a walk. Sometimes my, my early morning swim as well is a good time if I've, if I've sort of been ra- wrestling a little bit with a, a plot or a, or a character's development the day before. Then just being out there in the water, in the river, with no one else around, um, just a few ducks and <laughs> the occasional otter or kingfisher here. We're lucky enough to have those. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's that it's that sort of looking away and and not putting yourself under so much pressure that allows the brain to to find the way through, I think. A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
We're back with more from Fiona in just a sec. Now, if you enjoy the show, if you've learned anything along the way, anything that has helped the way that you tell your stories, the way that you plan your day, um, you can, well, say thank you to us for that. It sounds a bit strange for me to say I'm British and this kind of thing is tough, but yeah, bear with me. Um, it's just me working on this show. I do everything. Most of the time, I'm able to get you a episode a week of some of the best authors around sharing their stories. And if you'd like that to carry on, if you'd like to hear more of the greatest authors around from wide-ranging genres, well, you can help that happen by becoming a backer over on our Patreon page. If you get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine, you can back us just a small amount a month. A few dollars really helps us keep going. It helps me keep doing this, dedicating the time that I need to bring you the best chats around. I've got time to find the authors that you want, do all that, read the books, have a chat, edit, get the episodes out there. All of that, it takes time and you can help me carve that time out for that. Uh, you get our eternal thanks. There is merch. There is bonus episodes. There is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And it doesn't take a lot. I really appreciate every single dollar, every single cent, pence, pound, whatever it is. I appreciate everything that you can send to me by becoming a backer and pledging over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Fiona Valpi talking about her new novel, The Cypress Maze. It's inspired by the true story of the English-born Iris Arrigo, who during World War II over in Italy sheltered refugee children and helped many Allied prisoners of war escape. Now, it's dual timeline, uh, it's set between kind of the 1940s and modern day, so you can find out how she deals with plot when looking at factual history, also the research that went into the novel, how much that influenced what she wrote. And we get back into it, looking through that compost bin Fiona mentioned, where different plots are percolating away. They are growing, they are thriving and festering. How does she dive into it to see what she might write next? Because that compost bin is there, it, it tends to be that something pops up. And usually something pops up before I've even finished the book that I'm working on. Um, I don't think so far I've ever been in a position where I've sat there and thought, oh, I haven't got anything else. You know, or I or I need to come up with something, or I need to get out and look for something. Um, that that magpie collecting and then composting seems to work really well for me, and and create these these inspirations that that um, that then crystallise when something else happens, or you know, sometimes it could be an email from from a reader, for example, my book, The Storyteller of Casablanca. Um, that, crystal, that really crystallized because I received an email from a gentleman in America who'd written, who'd, sorry, who'd read um, some of my other books set in France during World War II. And he said that he'd, he'd very much enjoyed my books and he really wished that somebody would write the story of his wife's experiences as a refugee in, in Morocco during World War II. And I thought to myself, you know, I've done a lot of research about France and about the, the World War II timeline. And I, I felt that by now, having written three books with World War II as their setting, actually four, one of them set in Scotland, three of them set in France, uh, I, I thought I had a pretty good grip on it. And I thought, oh, Morocco, you know, didn't, didn't, hadn't really given North Africa much thought other than vaguely knowing about the North Africa campaigns. But I hadn't realized that there were refugees who ended up in mainly in Casablanca um, who got stuck there, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. And th these were refugees who were desperately trying to, to escape Europe. And, and North Africa became the only exit route that, for many of them. And then they, they, they got stuck there because they had to apply for exit visas to, to get to Portugal entry visas to get to America or to Britain. And, and so there, there was this real community of refugees there. So once I started digging, that really inspired me writing that book. Um, and it was similar, actually, in a way with The Cypress Maze, which is my, the book that's coming out in, in July. I'd, I've always loved Italy. And that's, it's kind of my magic place to go for holidays. And, you know, I love the, the wine. I love the scenery. I love the architecture. I love the art and culture. I love the language. 
people are all gorgeous. Um, so I'd been quite often on holiday to Italy and to Tuscany in particular. Um, but it was only on one visit when I went to see this estate called La Foce um, and learned the history of Iris Arrigo, who had owned it during the war years, that that book suddenly crystallized. You know, I had sort of had in the back of my mind for, for quite a while, or I'd love to write a book set in Italy sometime. But it, it only crystallized when I read about one woman's story and, and her personal accounts, because Iris wrote two incredible war diaries, uh, which are well worth a read. Um, and so, you know, that, that was when that book suddenly crystallized into something more and, and began to grow out of the compost. Uh, so let's talk about the, the growth then of the Cypress Maze. You, you've read uh, Iris Arrigo's uh, story. Uh, you need to kind of make it your own. So what was the first thing that you did? I know that you're very research heavy and uh, you, you love to read and you like to collect ideas. What did you do before you started writing? What was the very first step you recall taking? Um, after I'd read Iris's diaries, I realised that there was no point just rewriting her story at all, because she's done it brilliantly. And there it is, you know, it's, it's an eyewitness testimony. She writes beautifully. She was a very accomplished biographer um, in any case. So I wanted to be careful to, to take the inspiration f that I'd found from visiting her, her beautiful estate with, with a lovely garden um, and reading her story and, and interweaving some aspects of it. But I wanted to make sure I wasn't just rewriting Iris's life. You know, I write fiction. It, it allows me to draw in all sorts of other themes. It allows me to pull in that contemporary timeline as well to, to give the dual timeline. So I began to read far more widely around my subject, which is what I normally do. So before I even start um, thinking about writing the first word of my of my next novel, I read really widely. I research, you know, all over the internet, anything I can get, um, pictures, inspiration, going to visit galleries and museums, um, just digging, really, uh, digging in that compost. I'm, I'm a very gardening oriented person, as you can tell. <laughs> um, so yeah, lots and lots of reading around the subject, trying to, trying to broaden it out, trying to get a real feel for what Italy as a whole was like during World War II. And my goodness, it's complicated. I mean, the headaches I had trying to trying to wrestle that timeline into some sort of um, logical sense of understanding um, was really tricky because it is so complicated. You know, Italy was a was a country that that where there was a civil war going on between the fascists and the and the partisans, where there was a world war going on, and they switched sides several times, depending what Mussolini was up to at the time. Um, and then kind of halfway through, for good measure, they decided to uh, declare war against their neighbour Greece. Just, you know, let's throw in an extra war. So <laughs> I tore my hair out um, a lot reading all the, you know, try, just reading lots of history, lots of it, Italy, World War II history, and um, trying to get my head around it so that I could then do it justice and give it some kind of structure that would that would underpin my book. So you've done all this reading, but the thing is, you can't. Yeah, you know, no one's going to buy a, a book that is purports to be fiction, but it's just a load of facts about the, what happened in Italy. Um, so, uh, at what point does does a thread of a plot? At what time do the characters appear to you when when you when you're wrestling with these? Um, I think the characters in my historic strand of that story emerged. As I was doing that that research, that historical research, I could I could sort of see um, Francesca, who's the owner of the villa in my novel, and Beatrice, who's the main historical protagonist in my novel, um, who is a, a Scots girl who ends up stuck and stranded in Italy during World War II and is taken in 
by Francesca on, on this beautiful estate where there is a garden and where there is, of course, a cypress maze. Um, so those historic characters popped out of that. But my contemporary characters were already with me in the sense that I wanted to write about a topic, a really dark and difficult topic, which is motor neuron disease and assisted dying. And that came about through personal experience. I have um, not close connections, but but connections with two people who um, have been through that experience. One was a man called Richard Selly, who was an ex-colleague and, and friend of mine, who died of motor neuron disease and and took the, the really difficult and harrowing decision to end his life at a clinic in Switzerland. Um, and the other was a woman I met, again, you know, one of these chance encounters that just help things to crystallize a bit. I was out hill walking and I met this, this woman who was on the same walk and she talked about having recently lost her husband and it turned out that he had died of motor neurone disease. And I told her that I was a novelist and that I was thinking about writing a book where this was a major strand. And I asked whether she would in any way feel comfortable coming to talk to me about her experience as a wife, supporting and being with her husband as he went through that terrible illness. And and he died of it at home. He, he didn't take the decision to go the, the assisted dying route. And she did. She, you know, we were, we were complete strangers, really. But she came round and we had endless cups of coffee and scones and talked and talked and talked. And I scribbled down notes. And it was just such a privilege to hear her story. And at the end of it, I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for, for talking to me about that. And, and I hope you're okay. I hope it's it hasn't been too harrowing an experience. And she said, I'd never talked to anyone about it in that much detail, but it's really helped me. And so that she kind of gave me her blessing to, to write my book. And I, I needed that because, you know, it's not something I've experienced personally, but I have, I, I was now in possession of this um, testimony and also Richard Selly, my, my other friend, had had documented his illness and his decision. Yeah, I, rem- I, I remember that. I remember that case a few, a, a, a few years ago. I do yeah, remember that. And he, he actually wrote a book called Death Sits on My Shoulder, which was his his MND diary, if you like. And, and that's still out there. And, um, you know, any proceeds go to support research into motor neuron disease. Um so to so I had his testimony as well, and those two um, strands of of different people's stories and a slightly different experience of the same terrible illness were was something I felt really strongly about weaving into a novel. And the Cypress Maze was the novel that 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 strand fitted into. When you're doing a lot of research about this history and in, in, in you know previous books and perhaps in future books, how much do you find it's the uh, the, the second timeline, the the one that's taking place more or less in the present day, that is that is the bigger challenge, kind of figuring out a narrative that will flow and will work and bring a plot out of the former. Very much so, um, because you know the historical timeline is y- you can't play around with it, at, well, at all in terms of factual timelines. I, I try to really stick to um, the facts and to portray that, whichever part of history it is, as, as accurately as I can. So, and that, that creates all sorts of other challenges. I remember once um, an editor saying to me, can't you move this this shipwreck that, that is, a, is a seminal moment in a you know, World War II um, shipwreck in one of my books? And I said, well, no, I can't because that's when it happened. <laughs> you know, it really did happen. And I'm not just going to create a fictional one for the, for the sake of my story. I want to, to portray the, the, you know, those awful events as they happened. Um, so from that point of view, the historical 
timeline and the historical characters, not without their own challenges, but in some ways it's easier because it's it's a given. And the more contemporary strand it's is really up to me. It's up to me to find what I'm going to pull in to find those points of connection with the historical timeline, to find those areas of contrast with the historical timeline, um, and also to find congruence. I call it the three C's of, of dual timeline fiction, because for me, that, that's why I write it. I, I write a contemporary strand in order to show how relevant history still is to us on a very, very personal level um, for, for each and every one of us. Um, you know, at the, at the very top level, I write stories about grief and hope. Um, I write stories about ordinary people in extraordinary times. And so I apply that to both the historical timeline and the contemporary timeline. And yes, very often the editor will come back to me and say, historical timeline's great, you need to do a bit more work on the contemporary one. Thank you so much to Fiona Valby for coming on the show. The new book is The Cypress Maze and it's out right now. Next week, we're with Jack Jordan chatting about his new novel, Conviction. It's all about Neve, who must make a choice, betray every principle she's ever had by putting an innocent man in prison or risk putting those she loves in mortal danger. Uh, I loved chatting to Jack. Brilliant at running through the process that it takes him to write a novel. So Jack is on with us next week on the podcast. In the meantime, you can support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Drop us a follow on Twitter at X now, isn't it? At writers pod. I will never get used to that. At writers pod on X. Get in contact, writersroutine.com as well. And I will see you next week with Jack Jordan on the show. Until then, happy reading, happy writing. Bye. (laughs) 